Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bard Flies, a podcast about learning to take no for an answer. This week with Twelfth Night, we're discussing shipwrecks, mistaken identities, killjoys getting their comeuppance, and whether or not it's maybe time for Shakespeare to stop obsessing about twins. Plus, the Shakespeare Expanded Universe returns. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 24, Twin Decent Proposal. What would my hero be? The saddest wretch in all the kingdom, sick with love. It's a beginning. Let him be a duke and your heroine. Sold in marriage and halfway to America. Let's see then. A voyage to a new world. A storm. All are lost. She lands on a vast and empty shore. She is brought to the Duke. Orsino. Orsino. Good name. Will? Before we dive into our discussion, uh, can you give us a plot summary and tell our listeners what happens in this play? Happily, James. Happily. Our play begins on the rocky coast of Illyria and the Adriatic Sea in the Balkan Peninsula with a shipwreck that strands Viola on the shore, separating her from her twin brother Sebastian, whom she fears died beneath the waves. She has landed in the realm of Duke Orsino, a noble of good reputation whom she decides she wants to serve, adopting the identity of a young man named Cesario, and heading off to court to begin life anew. All is not well, however, with Orsino. He is desperately in love with the aloof and mourning noblewoman Olivia, who recently lost both her father and brother in quick succession, and is completely uninterested in him. She has declared that she won't entertain proposals for at least seven years. The Duke, not wanting to wait that long, enlists his new favorite Cesario to serve as an intermediary to convince her otherwise, not realizing that Viola, behind her disguise, has fallen in love with him. Viola goes off to woo Olivia for Orsino, only for Olivia to fall in love with Cesario, thus completing our lesson in romantic trigonometry. Meanwhile, at Olivia's house, pranks are afoot. Her priggish and pious majordomo Malvolio is trying to crack down on the raucous partying, of Olivia's relative, Sir Toby Belch, and his friend, Sir Andrew Aguecheek, both of whom conspire with Olivia's servants Maria and Fabian to teach Malvolio a lesson. Maria, who has written so many letters for her mistress that she can fake her handwriting, drafts a letter which suggests that Olivia has fallen in love with Malvolio, and fantasizes about Malvolio donning yellow stockings and wearing them cross-gartered, which in fact Olivia finds quite distasteful. Malvolio tries to woo Olivia in his new outfit and comes across like a madman, leading Olivia to defer to Sir Toby and Sir Andrew, who have Malvolio locked up in a dungeon. Amid all of this merriment, Viola's twin Sebastian appears on the scene, alive and rescued by the hand of Antonio, an old rival of Orsino who nonetheless so admires Sebastian that he joins him in Illyria. There's much confusion due to the resemblance of Sebastian to Viola in her disguise as Cesario, so much so that Olivia ultimately thinks Sebastian is the latter and proposes to him on the spot. They marry in a somewhat shocking turn of events. Eventually all comes right when the twins are face to face and Viola unmasks herself. Orsino and Viola get hitched while Toby marries Maria. 
Malvolio is freed and swears revenge, but Orsino seeks to make things right with a bit of diplomacy as the music strikes up and the curtain falls. Thanks, Will. And on that note, let me just dive into... Let me just dive into this here and, 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 confront, and confront this play head on because, Will, I'm starting to feel a pattern. And the pattern is, I don't think these comedies are that great. And it feels a little bit controversial to say that because I know that both of the last two comedies that we've read, which are this one and As You Like It, I feel like are supposed to be kind of the great Shakespearean comedies. I don't get it. So you can tell me, I guess, first of all, let me just ask you if you are in agreement with me or not. And if you are in agree with me, then what do you think, at least for you, what do you think is not working about these plays? But that's kind of assuming that you're in agreement with me. So I guess tell me your thoughts on my controversial statement and then give me your I opinion. would say, without much ado about nothing, I am in complete agreement with you. If you were to remove that from the equation, I would say with much ado about nothing, which I quite liked... That is probably the only comedy I've really truly enjoyed in the whole pack of them. And we've read a fair number of comedies at this point. I mean, it's got to be, what, eight or nine at least, maybe a little mm-hmm. bit, maybe a little bit less. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mostly agree with you. There are some great lines in here. There are some funny moments, certainly. I definitely think uh, the Malvolio bit is amusing uh, and relatively well executed. And you can see how it, it could work on the stage with the right actors. But at the end of all of it, though, I just feel like this is a rewritten and slightly more sophisticated take on the comedy of errors. Same basic plot inspiration, but it's it's almost as if that slapstick comedy put on errors and is trying to be more than it actually is. And I find that to be a little bit frustrating and disappointing And I find a lot of the plots recycled throughout the comedies in ways that aren't terribly enjoyable. Uh, So the answer more or less is, yes, I I agree with you with the caveat of much ado about nothing. Well, I I actually, it's interesting you say that because I actually would probably separate. And and we've, we've talked a little bit about the remixing element before, right? That it does feel like he's coming back to certain elements and reworking them and rejiggering them for the different plays that he's writing. I would say what's interesting to me is that, because I agree with you that I, I think Much Do About Nothing, let me put this in a more pithy way, actually. It feels like the plays that are least representative of the things that Shakespeare seemed to think is funny or are funny are the ones that are, to me, the most successful. And I would say that that's Much Do About Nothing, Love's Labor's Lost, and The Merchant of Venice, and I don't even know if we are including The Merchant of Venice as a comedy. Yeah, yeah. Right? And in fact, I don't know that the comic element of The Merchant of Venice is what's actually good about The Merchant of Venice, or interesting about The Merchant of Venice. So, you know, it, it feels to me like Shakespeare is fascinated by this idea of mistaken identity, And I think there are some interesting thematic things we can talk about with that. I I mean, there seems to be, we've seen a couple of times this idea of sort of cognitive flexibility and the question of whether we conform our reality to what society is presenting versus what is real. Mm -hmm. 
But the way, you know, the way that Shakespeare keeps on exploring that is through this thing of twins and mistaken identity. Whereas it's the comedies that really lack that element where he's doing stuff that feels like less within this Shakespearean mold that are more successful. That, that makes me wonder, like, is this just a taste thing? Like, are, are there people who find this kind of comedy hilarious and it's just not for us? I, I mean, I think of, like, the Coen Brothers maybe as a little bit of an example where I, like, the Coen Brothers movies that I like the most I think are the ones that people who really like Coen Brothers movies might actually like the least because they're the ones that are the most mainstream and least in the niche of the Coen Brothers I don't give me, know. So give what, what, me uh, say more about that. Give me an example of of what you mean with the Coens, because I think it could be relevant for our discussion here. Okay, so like my favorite Coen Brothers movies are movies like Miller's Crossing and No Country for Old Men, mm-hmm. and True Grit as well. And mm-hmm. all those movies have or are inflected with the kind of offbeat comedy that I think is the hallmark of the Coen Brothers. Right. But they're not the full bore kind of... I, I, wacky's not quite the right word, but they're not that to the nth degree in the way that... Raising Arizona. Like Raising is, Arizona yeah. or The Big Lebowski mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And those are movies that are adored and like just absolutely beloved by some people, but I think are fairly niche. Whereas movies like No Country or True Grit are appealing to a broader audience. Yes, yes. So... I'm going to run with that for a second with these because I think it actually tells you something instructive. So I think the thing with Twelfth Night compared to Much Ado or Merchant of Venice, to use your sort of Coen Brothers analogy, Merchant of Venice and Much Ado and Love's Labor's Lost, thematically, they're all about growing up, love, jealousy, complexity in... Traditional kind of broader romantic, topics, you mean. Right, and, and complexity in traditional romantic relationships without quite the same level of artifice. In a lot of ways, all the conflicts are psychological. Some of them are social, but a lot of it's really about people getting over their hang-ups in various ways. Mm-hmm. And then Merchant of Venice, I mean, the love plot isn't really all that interesting and isn't really why we talk about it at all these days. So you can almost cut that out of the equation. But Twelfth Night... I think there are probably two groups of fans for this one. In the same way, there's probably two groups of fans for The Big Lebowski, right? There are the people that are seriously into picking apart and interpreting every little bit of Big Lebowski, you know, some of the the more niche, not even niche, but some of the more cult classic Coen Brothers movies, Mm -hmm. where you get, like, lots of interest in, like, the philosophy of the dude, you know, right. whatever. Yeah. You get people that really um, take this kind of what it can also be enjoyed, and this is the other side, the other big audience, is a totally kind of ephemeral, fun, wacky movie without a whole lot of depth to it. Mm-hmm. You get people that really want to read a lot of depth into it. So with Twelfth Night, there are a lot of literary critics and English professors that love this because it's all about mistaken identities, gender bending, lots like of sort of fluid kind of suggestions about sexuality, lots of discussion about, you know, what's appropriate and inappropriate in society. So a certain audience is going to love it. And then there's another audience that's just going to like it because the love plots are multiplying. There's a lot of like wacky characters. There's some, some amusing comic subplots. Uh, so you can also watch this at a very surface level and mm-hmm. find it entertaining. 
I think for us, maybe we've read a lot of these similar plays in quick succession. And I think the novelty, we, we're like the Borg. We have assimilated to the, <laughs> we have assimilated this mistaken identity twin kind of thing. And I think it's starting to uh, lose its effect on us, if it ever had it to begin with. Right. So that's interesting. I, I mean, I think part of what I think I'm reacting to here, Will, is that I think that those conflicts in Love's Labor's Lost and and look, Love's Labor's Lost, uh, you know, I, I will note, of course, that like, I really think it's that turn at the end of Love's Labor's Lost that really makes it work, you know, right. and, and I think much of the buildup of that play is quite funny, but is feels a little bit empty. And, and I think that maybe is what I'm reacting to here is that this kind of comedy or, or this kind of situation doesn't feel like it's that important. You know, whereas what really worked in a play like Much Do About Nothing is that, is I think it's that Beatrice-Benedict relationship, right? Mm. And they are both, you know, they both clearly have this pre-existing love for each other and it's about them needing to overcome their own hangups, as you put it, to get together. Whereas in this play, the conflict is not that interesting, right? It's like different... And I think part of that is because it's created by this somewhat fake situation Mm -hmm. whereby Viola has a twin and also she's dressed up like a man. So she looks like her twin even more Mm -hmm. so than she would otherwise. And so it's like drawing comedy out of this situation, but it doesn't feel very relevant, I guess, or very like it doesn't feel like it's getting at anything more profound. And I, I guess that's what it comes down to, right, is like. For the comedies to really work or where they're really working for me is where they're getting at something deeper and more essential and they're less about the situational comedy of the plot. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a... I think one of the pleasures of something like Twelfth Night is watching these kind of daft characters make Mm -hmm. ridiculous decisions and be trapped in situations of their own making. So much so that, right, Sebastian ends up accepting a proposal from Olivia more or less on the spot, (laughs) almost under false pretenses in a certain sense, and they go off to get married. And it just, it's so bizarre and happens so quickly. There's kind of a pleasure in the zaniness of it all, but it doesn't really feel terribly relatable. Yeah. Even when you're well, even when you're accounting for like the insanity of love that the characters all comment on and that is maybe one of the more profound points in the embedded in it. But it even really that feel point, that I feel like we've seen explored like actually I think that's one of the things that works in Midsummer Night's Dream, which is also a comedy that I, I, I think I probably liked it more than I like this one, but didn't blow my socks off by, by an interest of the imagination. Mm. It does feel like it's that that thing that you're talking about with where Sebastian shows up, right, and he is con- all of a sudden confronted by what appears to be a, a, this new reality. And he, and he's like, oh, well, am I the crazy one? I guess I'm the crazy one. Okay, well, I, I guess I'm supposed to marry this woman now. That kind of question about the nature of reality almost that's engendered by these people, the, these identical twins, seems to be an idea that Shakespeare just can't quite figure out how to handle like it mm. just seems like a thing that he's really interested in but that goes to your point about the comedy of errors i think where and look I, i'm i think i'm 
I'm not sure how committed I am to this position, but for the sake of discussion, I think I might advance the argument that the comedy of errors is in a way the better version of this because it just takes that idea, pushes it to its extreme, and like really, really explores or portrays what this looks like. Mm-hmm. And then is over very quickly, right? I, I mean, it right. like it knows what the joke is, and it explores the joke pretty fully, and then it's over after eighty pages. Whereas I don't know that this play is really bringing that much more to the discussion. Yeah, I don't know. I I think I'd slightly disagree with you here, partially because I think Twelfth Night is better written, and there are some interesting elements salted throughout. I would say, though, Comedy of Errors knows what it is and Mm -hmm. leans into it. And as you say, it explores the joke fully. It doesn't really reward, I think, rereading, but neither does watching a... uh, In some ways, it doesn't reward rereading, but it might enjoy watching, you know, again, with different constellations of actors. In the same way that, like, The Three Stooges, that's not a terribly complex type of comedy, but people are going to watch it and enjoy it, and it's straightforward and lacks pretense. This has a little bit of pretense to it in Twelfth Night. If Comedy of Errors is slapstick Three Stooges, this is sort of like your middle-brow, faux-sophisticate comedy that you might see. I don't even know what a good analogy might be, but it's sort of like a crappy version of Frasier or something like that. I don't even know. That's probably not the right, right. analogy, but I'm going to roll with yeah, it. Yeah, and to your point, Will, I think it's also notable that maybe with the histories and the tragedies, you lose a little bit less uh, like reading on the page versus seeing it in performance. I mean, I do think a lot of these plays, a lot of the comedy doesn't really come out on the page, and therefore it might be better to see it and like you might seeing it get the banteriness of yeah. it better. And also of course the physical comedy of it. And, and that was a big part of comedy of errors too, right? Where comedy of errors is all about the physical comedy and the masters beating up the servants. And I wonder if that's part of it too. I mean, I wonder if some of this is just that we're not quite able to visualize and comprehend the humor in these plays uh, in reading them in a way that might that we might enjoy them more seeing Mm. them yeah i think that's probably true and maybe there's some poignancy to aspects of the plot that could be drawn out by skillful actors i i guess i'm i'm sort of feeling like the madcap quality of all of the love plots spanning out and getting spooled and unspooled over the course of the play. I just feel like I'm kind of a little bit over that particular style of comedy at this point. And -hmm. maybe that's our desire for novelty, but I just kind of feel like I've seen bits and pieces of it before, but it doesn't really strike me like it's advancing in any particular direction. But I would say something that I was amused by, and I know we want to spend some time talking about it because it seems like something that Shakespeare might actually be interested in, is the Malvolio subplot to a certain extent. Because I actually did find that kind of funny. I don't know. What about you? Did you find that amusing at all? I was struggling a little bit to decode it, to be Mm -hmm. honest, because... 
I do see the comedy in it, and Malvolio is... Right, Malvolio is this killjoy. He's a Puritan. You know, there's this great line where Olivia, early on, before this stuff starts to unspool, Malvolio basically disses the fool, you know, the local fool. And Olivia says, oh, you are sick of self-love, Malvolio, and taste with a distempered appetite. (laughs) And that, I think, kind of summarizes the character. You know, he's a real negative Nancy, holds himself above others and thinks that he's better than them, basically. And that is... Now, I I didn't really understand the nature of the conflict between Malvolio and Sir Toby, other than that Malvolio, I think, was just trying to get him to drink less. Uh, You can tell me if I've missed some, like crucial horrible thing that malvolio has done to these characters but i don't i don't think that i have (laughs) and actually i think this was maybe what i found most interesting about the play on the one hand i think that it is fun to see a character like a malvolio get his comeuppance and be shown (laughs) up on the other hand i think i'm a little bit ambivalent about that And, and and it seems like shakespeare seems to be a little bit as well where like on the one hand it's funny to see it and you kind of feel like he's a prig and deserves to be Mm -hmm. shown up a little bit. But I also am uncomfortable with the level of cruelty that it engenders. So I was sort of trying to decode that. And and I, I guess I kind of got the impression, though, again, like always need to be cautious about ascribing to Shakespeare, what we think Shakespeare feels, because I, I, you know, of course, that's a dangerous game, and we can't really access it. But my sense reading this is that Shakespeare also, just based on the way that the play ends with Malvolio swearing revenge, and the Duke being like, oh, he's been Mm -hmm. badly wronged, go and sort this out with him. You kind of get the impression that Shakespeare is also a little bit ambivalent about it. And I did wonder if this is a little bit of the crowd service, you know, it's the theater going audience, Of course, the Puritans and these sorts of characters are the people who are trying to shut down the theaters. You know, so I wonder if some of this is about giving the groundlings the opportunity to see someone like this that they might not like very much get their comeuppance. I don't know. What what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think a lot of it is topical humor. There are references in it to Puritans, reference to a Puritan's in the text itself. He uses the word. And there are references to, like, Congregationalists, which are the Puritans of that period, I think they use the name of like Brown or Brownson as sort of a stand-in, must have been the early name for it in Elizabethan and Jacobian times. And there's also references to bear baiting, right? And to all sorts of practices that are clearly frowned upon and were frowned upon by the Puritans and eventually banned during the glorious Commonwealth years later on after the English Civil oh War, which James and I can fight about at another point in time. Military dictatorship. Under the bloodthirsty Oliver Cromwell, I think is what you mean. As opposed to, well, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to defend Oliver Cromwell on this here podcast, but I will just say um, the decadent and desiccated absolutist aristocracy of Charles the first, under which bear baiting was permitted and great cruelty to animals was sanctioned and allowed by the state. But at any rate, there's all sorts of topical jibes along these lines that I think probably are a little lost in the translation. I think we probably find them interesting and more complex than maybe the average groundling may have. So right, I think yes, we got to I sure. think taking a step back from that. The cruelty of it is like they basically portray Malvolio as insane and have him involuntarily committed, uh, which kind of happens in um, 
in a comedy of errors as well in a, in a different sense. But there's an aspect of it that is excessively cruel. On the other hand, Malvolio isn't a terribly likable character in a lot of ways, so it's great to see him very easily led astray and mocked, even if it really turns on him wearing yellow stockings and wearing them cross-gartered, which I'm not even sure what so, wearing cross-gartered stockings actually on, means, but we can we can go into I think that. it's basically like fishnets, or that's my, that, that's like the way it's always been portrayed when I've seen this play. Uh, interesting, it's like interesting. Stockings. I don't know if that's actually what it means in the Elizabethan sense, though. So on the subject of Shakespeare rehashing or bringing in old plot devices, the Malvolio thing seemed to me to be like a light version of Shylock, Mm -hmm. right? And when I say a light version, what I mean is it feels like it's lighter in every way, right? The punishment that he faces and what happens to him is not really as bad as what happens to Shylock. He's not as vicious as Shylock. Mm -hmm. And the identitarian stuff is not nearly as foregrounded as with Mm -hmm. Shylock. So on, on every valence, it's not as extreme, Right, Shylock is is just a much more extreme situation, I think, in all mm. aspects. That said, I think also that kind of makes this not work as well, or not be as interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, Malvolio, yeah, like he's kind of a killjoy. He's kind of pompous, you know, and he, he's trying to get in the way of Sir Andrew's fun and Sir Toby's fun and and what have you. He's also kind of an authority figure over them, mm-hmm. right? He's the steward of Olivia's household. He's in a position of responsibility that they're not in. So he's kind of just doing his job. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's doing his job in a more obnoxious and annoying way than we would like. And in fact, he probably is. So all of that is to say, I feel like what's happening with Malvolio is... It's kind of a cheap joke. Like, I, I think it's kind of I, a cheap I joke. I think it's well, it's it's a kind of a cheap joke, and it's like yes, it is fun to see this happening, and like I think we have an inherent dislike for Malvolio as this killjoy, right? And part of what's happening here that I think is related to the thematic project of the play is that Malvolio is being forced to confront the fact at the end that he, for all his sort of claims of purity and claims of inflexibility and great principle, has just as much much cognitive flexibility as anyone else in the play, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, he basically very quickly allows himself to be led into this trick because it appeals to his vanity that Olivia would be in love with him and that maybe he could become the lord of the house and and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So what's really happening is that he's being shown that his opinion of himself does not actually comport with reality, Mm -hmm. right? And on the one hand, I think it's easy to say that that is good in some sense, right? By taking the piss out of him, you're kind of educating him. Maybe that's good somehow. But also, right, I think it's, and this in a way goes back to the Falstaff stuff too, right? In a way, we only have our illusions about ourselves, right? And being disillusioned about ourselves is taking away something real. I feel like there's a better articulation of this argument, but I'm not really sure that Sir Andrew and Sir Toby are really any morally better than Malvolio. Oh, no, definitely not. And I mean, I, I, I think these guys are the equivalent of frat house pranksters. Yeah, I mean, they, they, and, and yeah. I guess I'm not sure that taking away 
it does to me, I think, feel somewhat cruel to take away Malvolio's like positive view of himself when it's kind of the only thing he has. Does that make any sense? <laughs> no, it, it not... does. It does. I think that's fair enough. And I kind of like Malvolio, despite all of the pompousness and ridiculousness that, that ends up happening. He strikes me as a very genuine sort. I mean, it's amusing to watch what happens to him. I think Sir Toby Belch and Sir Andrew Aguecheek, I mean, these guys are clearly like, would have been very happy partying with Falstaff. They would have been his mm-hmm. frat brothers in good earnestness at the Elizabethan University of dissolute Shakespeare characters. And so it's sort of hard for me to like truly love them, but it is it is funny. I feel like a good actor with Malvolio could do the scene where he gets the letter really, really well. Or the scene where he's mm-hmm. trying to woo Olivia and is just being totally rebuffed. Like, fair enough. You know, I think it's kind of a cheap joke in a way, and it's probably topical. It's topicality, commentary on Shakespeare's day that might be a little bit lost on audiences, but probably not in other ways. It's not really terribly sophisticated humor, but it's enjoyable. Clearly, Shakespeare enjoyed writing it in a way that isn't always mm-hmm. evident in a lot of the other episodes across this play, I think, at least. But that being said, I think this brings us back to our first question and sort of our, our power rankings, honestly, for this one, which is, how do you actually rate this one compared to everything we've read before? I mean, how good of a comedy is it, really? And specifically with respect to Comedy of Errors, where does it fall for you? So... As I'm looking at my rankings, Comedy of Errors is pretty far down there, actually. <laughs> I, oh, well, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm also wondering, like, where would I put it with respect to Merry Wives of Windsor? Yeah. And you know what? I, I think, I don't think I liked it as much as the Merry Wives of Windsor. Mm. I think I probably would place it above Comedy of Errors, ultimately, I think it's God. See, I'm 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 really torn here. I'm really torn. It, this play definitely did not do it for me. Will that, that's what I <laughs> that's my takeaway here. I think probably I do place it above the comedy of errors. I think you're right. I think there is a little bit more artistry. I think we didn't talk about the character of Festy, but I think that character is really strong in this one mm-hmm. and has some great lines and there are some funny moments. So, and I think probably for all that we've dumped on this play, I think it does have a little bit more to say than the Comedy of Errors. So I would place it above Comedy of Errors. I, I probably would also put it above Henry VI Part One mm-hmm. and below. You know what? I take it back. I'm not. I'm not placing it above Henry VI Part One. It, it, this this play goes above Comedy of Errors and below Henry VI Part One for me. That is my new number seventeen. Mm-hmm. And to me, the MVP is, in fact, the Fool Festy. What about you? Okay, so uh, similar feeling uh, in rough relation. I put it above Merry Wives of Windsor and above As You Like It, but below Henry VI, Part One, below Love's Labor's Lost, below Midsummer Night's Dream, though some of these I, I might have to take a mea culpa at and reorder as time goes on. But ultimately, for me, Twelfth Night falls at number 15, definitely above Comedy of Errors by three slots, and above Merry Wives, above As You Like It. It's it, So for me, it's actually performing okay in the comedy realm, which is more 
to say that my view of the comedies is not super positive. Mm -hmm. In terms of the MVP, well, James, you know that I love a good Puritan, so I went with Malvolio on this one. (laughs) Classic. I will say, so in relation to As You Like It, I think, to me, the difference is that Rosalind is such a compelling Mm -hmm. and intelligent character in As You Like It, and I don't think there's any character or element in this play that is as strong as that. So that's, I think, where As You Like It distinguishes itself for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Will, before we move on, I do want to note one thing. Now, you, you, you may recall from a while back... I advance the theory of the Shakespeare expanded universe. My belief that all of Shakespeare's plays, in fact, take place in one timeline and are related to each other. Now, it's been hard finding evidence to support this theory lately. But I did want to note that in this play, we do see the backstory of one Antonio, Mm. a.k.a. the merchant of the Merchant of Venice, who appears... In Illyria, in his early career as a pirate, supporting one Sebastian. (laughs) So I am placing this play in continuity with The Merchant of Venice. It is a light prequel to The Merchant of Venice, telling us the backstory of the pirate Antonio. The pirate turned respectable merchant Antonio, I should say. And also tells us how Antonio made all his money. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think there's something to that. There's also something to Antonio's relationship with a series of young men that's a little bit homosocial uh i think across these plays and there's an element of that too i would be lying if i would be lying if i said that i did not see a pattern in antonio's behavior in this play that related to his behavior in the merchant of venice that that i would i would be it would be false of me to say that I did not make a connection. I'm willing to entertain this fear theory further, and I hope that we get a uh, expanded view of it and a full rundown and maybe some spinoffs produced by James Smith in the future. Yes. So on that note, James, before we sign off, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? I do have a recommendation, Will. I recently watched the new film Judas and the Black Messiah, which is, I think it's on... I want to say it's on HBO Max. I'm not sure, actually, where it is to be seen. But it's a new movie from... Or it's a movie... I think it premiered at Sundance this year. It is about Fred Hampton, the Black Panther. And I will say about the movie, Will, you only need to look at the title to know what the attitude of the movie is towards Fred Hampton and what the politics of the movie are. So, like, if you are going to be turned off by a movie that is sympathetic to the Black Panthers and to radical politics, if you know that that's going to prejudice you against this movie too much, I would say it's not for Mm -hmm. you. I personally found the movie, first of all, it's extremely well made. It's sort of using a classic Hollywood political thriller type Mm. approach to get at this interesting historical story that I actually knew basically nothing about. I found the movie challenging. I don't think I endorse the degree to which the movie is a a little bit Mm hagiographic, but it's a really interesting movie. It's very thought-provoking, really well-made, and I I think highly worth watching. Nice. Give us that recommendation one more time, James. It is the film Judas and the Black Messiah, directed by Shaka King. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, we'll be talking about Shakespeare's take on Homer with Troilus and Cressida. 
Thanks for tuning in to Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at 